Welcome back to another episode of Mostly Ghostly with Matt and everybody's friend, Ray. How you doing over there, Ray? Not bad. How about you? Doing pretty good. We uh, we just put up a new episode today. We had a, a nice guest with us from uh, Draco Paranormal out in West Virginia. We had Lori Higgins and Anthony Douglas from that team, you know, giving us some uh, some of their most memorable investigation um and paranormal type things, you know. That's that was a fun episode. What did you think of last week's episode? I thought it was good. There's some very interesting stuff in there. We got a little, little, uh, little Illuminati talk. You know, Matt likes to hear, likes that Illuminati talk. He wouldn't want. He didn't go too deep. That's how you know that he's a, a professional when they don't want to go too deep. When they want to talk to talk about it f- forever, then you, you got to kind of question if they're really in it because they, they, their life could be on the line. Yeah. But uh, a lot of good stuff, you know. There was a lot of spiritual. There was a lot of, uh, over in West Virginia, they had a lot of devil-based things where, you know, these, you know, bridges. I, I recall a lot of bridges where, you know, sad stuff happened on, you know what I mean? So, but more than, more so, definitely that, like an hour and 40-minute episode. Um, yeah, chocked full of, that we kind of... We let them go, and they um, they filled up that hour and forty minute like it was uh, like it was ice cube tray. You know what I mean? It was nothing. And uh-huh. uh, yeah, we'll have them back in the future. But yeah, everybody, go check out our uh, last last uh, the, the most current. Our last episode's doing pretty good. We got up over one hundred and sixty uh, listens on it already, which is good, which is nice. I know we've been the last couple weeks. We've been kind of going up and down. Uh, I, I don't blame the show. I blame the audience. That's how you do that. Um, but yeah, so yeah, everybody check out. The quarantine has been kind of good with us in that sense. A lot of people are staying home and listening to the show. Um, so we're taking their views. And as as much as I don't want COVID-19 around anymore, I want the listens to keep on popping off. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. All right, so this week, we're, uh, we took a break last week to have a guest, two guests in, but this week we're jumping back into the haunted Massachusetts realm, and uh, we're going to attack southern Massachusetts. So uh, that's more in my neck of the woods. You know, we got, I think, the Bridgewater Triangles mentioned in this chapter as well. You know, um, me and Ray are currently working on a feature film that's based off of the Bridgewater Triangle. I know Ray had a, you had a story... Um, I think the, the first time you came down for a production meeting for it, I think it was, or was it, it was recently? I forget, I, I forget exactly when. Um, but do you want to tell that story real quick? It's a fun one about the, the Southern Mass. Uh, yeah, I uh, used the GPS to get there. And then uh, after spending time with you and talking, um, I used the GPS to get back. And first thing, when I was driving out of where we were, it told me to take a left instead of a right the way I came. I figured, ah, maybe it's a shorter way back. Going down the road, nothing looks familiar. And I got a general sense of direction, north, south, east, west. I knew I had to ha- had to uh, head west. And it tells me to take a right-hand turn. And I know, nope. So I ignore it, and I keep going down the road. It tells me, to turn around, proceed to the correct route. I ignore it. It tells me that again. 
I think, okay, this is getting annoying. I know I'm heading in a general right direction, so I'll intersect the road I know. So I turn the GPS off. I go down the street, kicks back on by itself, tells me to turn around again. Now I'm getting like, okay, what's going on? Because I was still in the triangle at that time. Yeah. So uh, I pull over. I turn the f- check to make sure the GPS is off. Turn the phone off, power it off. I figured, okay, I'm going to go my way, driving down the road. The phone turns itself on. GPS comes on, tells me proceed to the correct route. And I'm like, okay, this is getting interesting. Turn the phone off again. It did it one more time. So I left the phone on, let the GPS do what it wanted to until I hit a road I knew. And then started heading home. And once I got into familiar territory, out of the triangle, actually, mm-hmm. um, no more GPS. The rest of that day, uh, the phone was not working right because it was the, the GPS on the phone. And I couldn't bring up things that I wanted to. Uh, that night, I was having problems again the next morning. Until I actually did a series of prayers and rituals to remove attachments. And I basically had to exercise the phone and then very carefully the home to make sure that whatever I got out of the phone wasn't in the house as well. Mm. And since then, the phone worked fine and the house is fine. But that thing would not let me go the way I knew. And it was turning the phone actually back on when I powered it down several times. It was a little nasty. That was a kind of a little, okay, triangle, you got me this time, but... uh I got rid of it. Hell yeah. Amen, brother. Uh, fun fact, I actually went and got... Remember that book that was written called Satan's Harvest about the gentleman that was possessed? His father, like, sacrificed him. And then the father killed himself off, and then he later did too. It was from, I think, two episodes ago. Yeah, I got, I got a little bit of memory of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I purchased the book. So, I'll, I'll give it a read. I'll let you give it a read if you want, and we'll get into more deeper, uh, deeper, and go deeper into that, because that was one, one of the most interesting stories from the book so far. That should be interesting, yeah. And what book are we talking about? We're talking about Haunted Massachusetts, of course, by Sherry Reve. you know, we're, we're, uh, we're dabbling, we're taking some stories out of that book, so if you dig these stories... Go pick up the book. You can get it super cheap and anywhere books are really sold online and no better time than quarantine time. And uh, even if you're in a different state, um, all the bigger, uh, for the majority, I want to say I've seen a lot of the states got their own book. I think that's kind of what she does. So uh, reach out and, you know, maybe uh, you'll find your uh, your state in there and you'll have fun. But without further ado, I'm going to pop into the... Southern Massachusetts chapter. Okay. Uh, Southern Massachusetts includes the South Shore, which is my area, Plymouth County, and the southeastern region of Bristol County. The South Shore follows Boston Harbor all the way down through Plymouth, uh, Plymouth County to the edge of the Cape Cod region. Uh, Through the South Shore area is endowed more historical than it's paranormally its neighboring regions. Cape Cod and southern southeastern Massachusetts are two of the most haunted in the state. 
Um, the latter is home to the outrageously supernatural vicinity known as the Bridgewater Triangle, where mischievous apparitions thumb for rides and terrorize passing motorists. Ghost teachers conduct class for ghost students. Old Indian spirits shout out commands. Spectral voices bounce instantaneously from one location to the next and inexplicable sightings of peculiar animals, UFOs, spirit lights, and phantom fires abound. Every story included in this section, therefore, took place within the Bridgewater Triangle, except for one, the tale of the infamous Lizzie Borden House in Fall River, just north of the Triangle, which no legitimate book about haunted Massachusetts would be complete without. Yeah, Lizzie Borden's one of those real famous ones. Every now and then, uh, for a split second, I always forget that that happened in Massachusetts, but then I, then I come to my senses. <laughs> you know? So the first story up here is the illustrious Bridgewater Triangle. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happened there, but we'll see what they dip into with this. In the 1980s, Lauren Coleman, author of Mysterious America, coined the name the Bridgewater Triangle to uh, designate uh, a triangular region in the southern, uh, southern Massachusetts brimming with paranormal phenomena. Uh, most of the famous, most, much like the famous Bermuda Triangle, but with even more diversity. That's one thing you won't say, you, you don't say that for Massachusetts, too much diversity. Um, the Massachusetts Triangle is roughly 200 square miles in size, with its corners being Abington, where I, the town I actually grew up in, uh, Freetown, they're also known for Freetown State Forest, and the very haunted Rehoboth. Um, other well-publicized areas of supernatural activity within the Triangle itself include, but are not, um, certainly not limited to, the towns of Bridgewater, Taunton, Dighton, Berkeley, and the formidable Hockabock Swamp, which is the exact, exact location the feature me and Ray are working on right now is uh, based on. Um, at the heart of the Bridgewater Triangle, you better believe that. As you approach the Bridgewater Triangle, there should be signs warning you that you are really about to enter the Twilight Zone. That, in reality, there is no signs telling you anything. Um, in reality... The thing with the Bridgewater Triangle is that it's one of those weird things that when I, I've always been a fan of the paranormal and ghosts and stuff, and I didn't find out about this place until I was like in my mid to late 20s because it was just something that people don't talk about it. And it's one of those things you go, hey, you talk to certain people, you'll say, you know about the Bridgewater Triangle, and they'll go, yeah, pull up a chair. And then other people will be like, I've never heard of that in my life. But it's crazy because... Even as a big paranormal guy that I've always been, I, I, I learned about it a little bit later in my life. Um, so it's not something the townspeople really like to push. You know, it's not like how Salem will really kind of own own that the witch. Even though the witches, the witch trials didn't actually happen in Salem, they had in the neighboring town. But Salem will, will will you know feed into the whole propaganda and the whole you know, spirit of, of of the witch trials and do, do it all up there. Whereas in Bridgewater, it's kind of, they don't talk about the triangle. They kind of keep it, you know, under wraps as much as possible. 
Well, I think uh, some people uh, actually try and avoid it. I've spoken with some people about liking to visit, for instance, uh, the Hockamock Swamp. Yeah. And initially they say, oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, I'd like to do that. When you press them on it, they're never available. <laughs> they, it's kind of like, oh, no, 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 not, 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 not this week. No, 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 I can't. Like, okay, when it comes down to it, you don't want to set foot in it. Yeah, there's so many different stories about it that would scare you. You have satanic stuff, you have aliens, you have, you have ghosts and spirits, you have freakish animals that, you know, are a lot bigger than they're supposed to. We've even had the, you know, Bigfoot, signs of Bigfoot there. Like I said, the Bigfoot thing always makes me, you know, a little suspicious because I think it's, I think it's kind of like a cryptozoology type, almost freaking nature type thing, instead of this ghoul known as Bigfoot. You know what I mean? Well, actually, uh, I think it was around two thousand and two, mm. uh, just to the west of where I live in a wooded area. Right in a town line, there was a sighting, a Bigfoot sighting. Oh, so really? you've been around here recently. Yeah. It's a uh, Bigfoot's one of the, I, you know, I like to b- stretch the imagination, believe in everything, if, if that makes sense. Bigfoot's one of the ones that kind of, I don't say that it's definitely not true, but out of all the things, I think that'd be kind of, maybe it's just the fact that it's been, it's been mocked. It's one of the paranormal things that have been mocked into the ground and, you know, may, you know, they really push the, 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 the fact that it's not real. You know what I mean? Like whenever they're making, people want to make a mockery out of paranormal or something like that, or even if you want to go into conspiracy, uh, the Bigfoot things always, it's like flat earth where they always go, oh, like that's when people stop, talk, stop listening. They turn you off when you go into Bigfoot, I feel, you know what I mean? Like you, you can yeah. talk, you can talk ghosts all day and all that, but you, if you bring up Bigfoot, they go, oh, it's like bringing up uh, werewolves. Which in, in the last episode they brought up werewolves, which is, which was fun. But usually when you hear werewolf or like a Dracula, you kind of go and your brain kind of goes, ah, okay, now now it's time to stop listening to this person. You know what I mean? Yep. But uh, so Massachusetts has had se- has several hot spots where ghosts run rampant. However, the Bridgewater Triangle plays host to not only uh, phantoms but also UFOs, yeti type creatures, demon dogs, monster sized snakes and birds, cryptozoological enigmas, dirt circles as opposed to crop circles, uh, the other inexplainable atmospheric oddities. For that reason, many believe that the triangle is an immense window to another dimension. Low-flying, unidentified spacecraft have been reported ever since at least uh, 1760 in the towns of Roxbury, Bridgewater, East Bridgewater, Taunton, and Middleborough. Uh, Perhaps the spaceship pilots etched their identities into Dighton Rock in Berkeley for lack of a better explanation for the strange glyphics blanketing the well-known boulder. Atmospheric anim- animalities have included spook lights, also known as ghost lights or orbs, which are simply balls of spirit energy. Various colors of orbs have been bouncing along Elm Street in Bridgewater, zigzagging almost, uh, zigzagging along Raynham's Railroad in Dog Tracks. I know the Dog Track one forever. I've heard about that. Um, the drifting about in several areas, Rehoboth. 
There was also a well-known documented day during colonial times that the clear blue skies over the entire region turned sulfuric yellow. And the meteorological oddity of that time or of any time. A lot of uh, strange creatures have been seen in Hockamock Swamp. The 5,200-acre... Uh, heart of the Bridgewater Triangle from man birds to giant snakes to demon dogs to skeleton ghosts. There's just something about the surrounding that seems to attract or breed peculiar critters. But the dense primeval swamp is booby-trapped with quicksand and muskrat traps. I've always heard about the quicksand but never see. I think it's just the swampy muck. Um, I, I agree with you. Yeah, though neither is suitable for capturing the most wanted critter of all, Massachusetts' own version of Bigfoot, the Huckamock Swamp Creature. In the 1970s and 1980s, there was a wave of Bigfoot sightings in Bridgewater, which is on the edge of the swamp. It alarmed residents, uh, and they described the creature as beer-like or ape-like, lumbering, towering, hairy, and for those who managed to get close enough, stinky. Uh... Incredibly, uh, the elusive creature has evaded capture to date, either by hand or on film. And also, incredibly, it has left behind nothing to indicate that it ever actually was where it was spotted. But the large number of witnesses beg to differ. I heard that they actually have some footage of uh, Bigfoot uh, from the Bridgewater Triangle, but everybody has to go pick up American Sasquatch in August 2020 to to see that. Uh-huh. And yep, I agree with you. Hell yeah. Several years ago, a team of archaeologists found an ancient Native American burial ground dating to 16,000 B.C. on Grassy Island in Hockimock Swamp. When they attempted to excavate the graves, the mysterious substance bubbled up off the skeletons and evaporated, violently reacting to contact with the air after so many millennia. And every photograph taken on the researchers' activities... Uh, that the day came out blank. All their pictures were were fucked up, man. Uh, Hockamock was the name given to the swamp by the indigenous Native Americans who referred to it as Devil Swamp and a place of spirits. It was a place to be respected and avoided. Clearly, it was a sacred ground to the natives, and as such, any disturbance to the expressly forbidden or all hell could break loose. Maybe that explains the evil canine with glowing red eyes that the residents of Abington saw slaughter two of its ponies. He said the dog was as large as, a po- large as the ponies and seemed not to be of this earth. It could also explain the snakes from the swamp that are said to be as wide as a tree trunk. Uh, and it, expl- it might explain the Thunderbird, a giant man-like bird with a wingspan of 10 to 12 feet, said to have attacked uh, humans in the ancient times. These prehistoric-type birds have been seen in an area of the swamp coincidentally called Bird Hill, and in the village of Taunton, one of the towns associated with the swamp. There's also the Predator, uh, which is a local folklore of kind of like a bird man. Um, so many supernatural incidents have been reported in the entire Triangle area that some now believe 
the government's secret black helicopters are looking for explanations. That's interesting because we've heard about black helicopters before. It almost goes into that thing that I've seen over my apartment building that we contemplated being an alien that one time. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, if there's if there's something new, they're checking it out. Yeah. The mysterious black helicopters have been making increasingly increasing visits according to area residents. I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but anytime mutilated cattle seem to have dropped out of the sky and nobody knows where they came from or to whom they belong and UFO traffic is simultaneously heavy, you can be sure the legendary men in black will be sent to figure out what's going on before Joe Public does. You know, because like when I think of... That brings up the whole thing about, you know, how the UFOs might not even be FEO, UFOs, but, um, you know, I've been doing, I did some research on William Cooper this, this, this past week. He's a gentleman known for, uh, Behold the Pale Horse, this conspiracy book of which, you know, Behold the Pale Podcast, one of our podcasts has been named after. And, um, he's a gentleman who started out big in the UFO thing where he was saying that, when he was in the Navy, he seen a spaceship come out of the water, go up into the sky, and then come crashing back down into the water, but not be damaged. And, you know, he said, you know, I've seen, being in the Navy, I've seen all the airplanes, and that nothing that we have seen could had the ability to crash into the water the way that did and not blow apart. And then later, so he was big on that, and then later in life he came forward and he said that he doesn't know if he believes in aliens anymore, but he believes in alien materials and that like that the the spaceships that people see are the government kind of who somehow found these these materials that could withstand you know ultimate pressure and stuff like that and it's just whenever we see alien craft it's actually the government doing stuff like that what's your opinion on that uh, i would hope uh well, I don't. I don't know. I think that with the if the government has the technology, would they experiment with it? Yes. Um, could they occasionally be seen? I would hope they're smarter than that. But this is the government, so yeah. Sometimes it may be the government. Um, as for it being aliens, uh, I believe that the only time you may see something is when they they don't care or want you to. Yeah, that was kind of his take on it, where he was saying that. All, all, all these sightings that we see are there to be to create fear. He was he was he was sliding the UFO thing into New World Order type stuff where people see these aliens and they start to believe. Oh my goodness, there's something from another planet coming in. So then the, the, he says the government will one day flip it on you. And I guess there was a a long, long, like many, many, many moons ago, there was a guy that got up and spoke at one of those big, powerful meetings, and it was recorded, um, and it, like in writing, not a, like it was that long ago. It wasn't like no audio recording, but he, they stated that one of the ways to get up absolute power over people is to introduce this 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 possible enemy threat from the sky. So that if they ever needed to flip it and blame somebody for something, they could always use alien an alien threat to kind of get what they want. So his take on it towards the end of his life was more 
that it's a tool. All these UFOs are just government things that are a tool to kind of trick and manipulate people into thinking that there's aliens out there so they can say that the aliens are coming to, you know, kill, destroy us, and then we'll look to, who are we going to look to? The government to help us, you know what I mean? Well, actually, uh, along those lines, there's a couple of films based on... Uh uh, comic books, but yeah. a couple of live action films, Attack on Titan. Okay. Uh, this parts one and two. And it's a futuristic world, kind of a socialist society. Everybody's living basic in poverty except for the inner city mm. behind a wall. They have these different walls and the walls that are keep these titans out, these gigantic 50 foot tall, uh, mutant things that eat people and can't be killed. Yikes. And, uh, causes an accidental breach in a wall and they start coming in. The story goes on and on. And what you find out in the second one is that, uh, and also society is very much like they banned books. Mm. They're against people inventing and doing things. And what you find out is that the government is behind the breach in a wall. Mm. What you learn during the films is people had, were no longer complacent and they were questioning and they were wanting to go beyond the wall. They wanted things changed and the government in it admits that they needed that threat to control the people. And you do find out during it, um, is that the Titans are an outgrowth of a government experiment. Hmm. But yeah, they use that threat. And when it, the people that lived, I think it was a hundred years before, the people that forgotten didn't think the Titans were real, they break the wall to let the Titans in, scare the people again, get control again. I won't tell you how it ends, but, and what goes on in between, but yeah, they're using a threat. The government is using a threat in there. And they've done that consistently as, as far as, um, if you take a look at, when anybody is a declared enemy of the state or enemy of it, you look at propaganda films from uh, World War II, for instance, mm-hmm. the way they portrayed people, um, even at other times, the way they portray the enemy, and they blow it up to a humongous, dangerous threat so that you're willing to give up control mm. because you're afraid. But it's the government behind it. It's fear-mongering to divide and to... Uh, hold you down, and that unfortunately historically has happened, and it does show up in novels and movies. Yeah. They killed William Cooper, too. They shot him up. They shot him in his front yard. The, the, the local police did. That's what happens when they don't want you to talk. They were trying to get him to shut up for a long time. He William Cooper was one of the more famous conspiracy guys because he... Um, he, he had the UFO type deal um, with all that, uh, the uncovering of that, and um, he, uh, the JFK, he had a take on the JFK assassination, um, which is interesting about the driver actually landing the, the death shot that actually killed him. Uh, he had like, he had footage that, that uh, they played, because usually the footage that they would show you wherever you would see it is usually cropped in on close on Kennedy, but he had like a wider shot of what looks like the dude. And it, you see the footage, it'll blow your mind. It looks like the driver, Greer, I believe his name was, 
turning around and blasting him. Like, and you see, you see, like the gun jerk, and then disappear. Like right at the same time that the front of Kennedy's head comes off, and um, that's one of those weird conspiracies. And he was also credited. Um, he was also a whistle, like one of the first people to talk about how AIDS was man-made in a laboratory to kind of kill off the homosexuals and blacks, which, you know, I think there's some truth behind that. And the last thing he unco- he, he, he he spilled the beans on was he actually predicted 9-11, and he was killed two months after 9-11. Um, because he was telling, you know, the Osama bin Laden was being this guy that was being built up in the media before 9-11 as this really bad guy who kind of wasn't a big deal. And then in the last like year or so leading up to 9-11, you were seeing a lot about this guy. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the World Trade Center tragedy happened. And he said, he went, when they were making this guy up to be this big villain in the media, he said that, uh, you know, they're... The, the, the government, that the U.S. government was going to, they were going to stage, uh, stage is the wrong word because people did lose their lives, unfortunately. Um, but like they were going to, it was going to be like an inside job and they were going to blame it all on this guy, Osama bin Laden. And um, yeah, he, he, he had a lot of good points and then they, they snuffed him out after. You got to be careful when you, when you. When you when you when you're a little too honest with the, uh, they'll only allow a certain amount. You know what I mean. It's it's interesting in that I can remember, uh, and you're probably going back to the when would that be, 1960s. What when the in my youth, when my yeah. uh, early 60s. Okay. I think I was about 12 years old, and I'm reading a comic book. Yeah. And in a comic book there's a scientist that builds a giant robot and he has this giant robot come out of the sea terrorizing cities and stuff and mm-hmm. acting like and giving this classic sci-fi thing yeah. giving this this warning and terrorizing and then giant robot disappears hmm. and the result is that people pull together to be ready for something they were doing suspecting or telling the same thing in storybook form in the early 60s. Yeah. But they were, they were, they were using the comic books at that time to tell it. You got, um, remember War of the Worlds? Yeah. I'm sure you do. You, you know, there's the movies and then there was a, it was a, it was originally a radio broadcast. I want to say Orson Welles did it. And, yep. um, it was so like, it was such a mind-blowing thing at the time that people were, like, losing their shit over it because, it, it like, I've never listened to the actual broadcast, but I believe it's it's just broadcasted like a real news thing that's, like, you know, every like, telling everybody the aliens have arrived and they're, they're like, taking over the world. And uh, people were, like, I want to say people were, like, killing themselves and, like, Mass hysteria was going on, and he had to like apologize to the public for it. Um, but he, even like that, like that, the fear, and that was, I probably want to say, the 50s. It could have been the 60s, but I want to say that was even a little earlier than the 60s. Uh, I think it was earlier than that. But yeah, it's always kind of been one of those weird things where they go up. And we talked about UFOs on the latest episode of Behold the Pill podcast, where it's so weird that. Things that people were getting snuffed out for 20 years ago um, is just 
basic knowledge that you can just go look at on Google. You know what I mean? Like these are the people that kind of paved the way. Like they were so uptight in the beginning of all these people just talking. It was way before. They definitely didn't see the technology age coming or something where everybody could just look anything up on the computer. And uh, But yeah, it was crazy because we went through a whole list of UFO whistleblowers that ended up dead. And um, all like some of those people um, did less than did less than your typical run-of-the-mill, not even that inclusive, uh, barely doing research, you know, shows or podcasts that talk about, you know, some of these UFO situations. It just shows you how far things have come in, like, the last 20 years, if not 30, you know. But I'll get out of that, and I'll jump back into our book. Our, uh, our next story... The Rock of Ages, Berkeley's uh, enigma, enig, ugh, enigmatic Dighton Rock was located on As- Asanet Neck on the Taunton River, where it greeted the earliest visitors to America's shores and served as a guest book of sorts because of, because of the irreversible effect of weathering on the oldest markings. The boulder was moved to the protective shelter of Dighton Rock Museum north of Fall River in 1973, thus preventing its remaining inscriptions. Uh, but who exactly signed it uh, is a mystery, and who who is never, which has never been solved. Like many other puzzles born in the numinous region known as the Bridgewater Triangle, according to Elias Nathan. Uh, and George Varney, Massachusetts Gazetteer, 19, from 1890, um, a curious inscription have greatly puzzled the in, in, antiquaries of both old and of the new world. The rock is 11 feet in length by four, uh, one and a half feet in height, and consistent of mass of gray granite lying on the sides of the river, which partially covers it at every tide. On the water side, the face of the rock is nearly smooth and is inclined to 60 degrees. The figures are rudely carved and partially, uh, partially obliviated near the base of the action of the water markings. Uh, the water markings consist of rude outlines of human heads and bodies, crosses, misshapen letters, broken lines, and other singular forms and combinations. Since at least 1677, when uh, Puritan leader Cotton Mather copied the inscriptions and sent them to London to be interpreted, many people have tried to decipher the medley of strange glyphs on the face of the stone. So far, nobody has cracked the code. If there is a code, some scholars claim to have uh, deciphered portions of the stories based on their own personal expertise with any given language, but nobody has pulled it all together in a comprehensive understanding of what every single marking says and who each scriber was. The difficulty lies in the fact that the markings on the stone span thousands of years and the presumed signatures came from people uh, the world over and maybe even a few from out of this world. By the looks of some of the unusual drawings, uh, the general consensus is that the carvings are a hodgepodge of ancient uh, uh, Phoenician 
petroglyphs, uh, Portuguese names, Roman letters, primitive Native American and Aboriginal drawings, colonial signatures, and Norse inscriptions. Suffice it to say, nobody knows how long this remarkable Rock of Ages was used as the message board, but its prominent position on the shore of the Taunton apparently drew people to like a magnet for several millennia. Every explorer, it seems, dutifully left his mark on Dighton Rock. You think that that might just be in and itself? All these, you got a beautiful rock by the water. All these just travelers throughout the years. I think so, and you can't uh, you can't rule out the fact that some of those travelers may have been at times before what established history says there were people here. Yeah, um, you're going back to the Norse or Vikings and others. I mean, one example is that recently there were some stones that were buried and unearthed in Puerto Rico uh, a little while while back, and they've been trying to figure out what they say. Well, they finally figured the language out, and it's a combination of Hebrew and a type of uh, Arabic language that was used in the time of Solomon. Hmm. And how it got on there on an island on the other side of the ocean, they don't know. But obviously someone from that time at hundreds of years uh, B.C., or B.C.E., if you want to say it that way, did it, did it, inscribed it. So that rock, which may have Norse, may have Phoenician, may have others, may have had other visitors, and it's uh became a place to leave your mark when you visited. Yeah. Kind of like a Stonehenge, you know, like nobody knows. Now, was Stonehenge that, I know Stonehenge is that, that, you know, the circle of rocks and stuff like that, that nobody knows how they got there. But isn't there also some weird stone somewhere that's like an all black stone, almost like the monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey? And in it is like, in, engraved in it is some weird, like, apocalyptic thing about how there should only be. Uh, it's po- very population controlled where they say there should on it it says there should only be you know so many humans on the earth <coughs> and it also says take care of the earth and it's all like a big it's like a inspirational thing for you know mother earth and how to keep it how to keep earth going and you know some of the whole thing with humanity kind of being you know not the greatest thing that happened to the earth you know what i mean but um some would say uh, a disease. That one's actually in the U.S. What, that monolith one? The monolith one? Yeah. Where is that at, you know? Uh, we got to head south. I'm not sh- sure how far south. And it's not that far off the coast. I hmm. think it's, you don't, you don't have to go as far as the Mississippi as before that. Uh, I would be guessing more along the lines of um, Georgia, maybe, or maybe a little north of that. But... Uh, and that, that's just a guess. But, yeah, it tells what the maximum number of people must be. Uh, there's a lot on it. Not all of it is really nice. Yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I mean. <laughs> like, it was very... People People think that they, it was either left left by, like, 
like alien life telling us that this is what we if we if we want our our, our planet to survive, this is what we have to do. Some people think that it was like a, a super rich person that put it in there, like a, like a William Gates or something like that, um, who's very you know into population control. Um, something somebody like that who just kind of poof popped it down there, so people without you know taking credit for it, so people would you know take it more seriously because they don't know where it came from. Yeah, I don't know where the origin of that one is. Uh, the Bridgeporter Triangle one, I really believe that, uh, yeah, with the writing that resembles different ancient languages mm-hmm. uh, at different times, there were visitors. Yeah, There had to have been visitors to mark it up that way. And they had to be drawn to that spot for a reason. We don't know if it was um, magnetic, spiritual aliens, uh, psychological, what it was, but for some reason they found their way to that rock. It drew them somehow. Yeah. I'd like to see the area where it's at. Like, yeah, I'm surprised I've never went to it. I've heard about it forever. Uh, to see if it's really, uh, maybe it has, it's a beautiful landscape or something, so maybe it's kind of, it was one of the places that you would go to if, you know, you were coming to this part, because we're East Coast, so like, it would be people that come to travel over, you know, um, they would kind of find themselves there, you know what I mean? Because we're on a coast. And, uh, well, I'd be, interesting in, in, I'd be interested in looking at the old topography of the coast to see if uh, you go far enough back where the safest or most inviting harbors were yeah. and if that's anywhere near them for travelers. Probably. I always feel like New York has, was the more popular harbor. Like, everybody would come in New York, but you would have, like, Boston would be a hard, you know, people would come through here, but it would, it'd be it'd be not as booming, you know what I mean? So, like, if people were sneaking things in or, or, or didn't want to deal with, you know, maybe the whole hoopla of a lot of people being around, they might bring it in through Boston, you know? What I was thinking about, if you go farther back to, like, Norse or Viking, and yeah. you go back some of the writings of Phoenician-like, mm-hmm. um, the path they took across the Atlantic... And maybe that was the most, at that time, the most inviting harbor that they could find. True. Well, that makes sense. That one, this one's not really, so I don't really take this one too much as a paranormal or a ghostly thing. But it's, I I really just think it's a, a rock that people just tagged up. People just, you know, it's been there forever, so it's got a lot of tags on it. You know what I mean? I think they say that there's... There's tags on it that they think go all the way back to, like, caveman error and, like, you know, uh, signs of uh, sketches of, of alien life is in it and stuff like that, if I remember correctly, from local folklore. But, mm-hmm. but next up, the Phantom Fear is at Anawan Rock. Anawan Rock is located in the Squanaconk Swamp on U.S. Route 44 in Rehoboth. And is historically famous for the skirmish that took place there. Uh, a marker at the foot of the giant boulder states that it is the site where the elderly Anawan Wampanoag Indian chief and King Philip's war captain was captured by Captain Benjamin Church of the Colonial Army in 1676. His surrender based on Church's empty promise uh, that he would be treated fairly. That's it. Yeah, the church killing it. Um, marked the end of the year-long King Philip's War. The old chief's campfire at the foot of Anawana, An- Anawanan Rock had barely stopped smoldering uh, 
when the trusted soul was executed in Plymouth, even after being told in a verbal agreement that he and his small band of natives would be spared. Many people have seen phantom smoke and transient campfires near the site, while others claim to have smelled it. Uh, Mysteries smoke-like haze found in numerous photographs taken there seems to be uh, to corroborate with that observation. Sorrowful chants are said to bounce off the walls of the forest and bedrock that bears Anawan's name. Some have described it as coming from one direction at one moment and another direction a split second later, lending the supernatural ambience to the atmosphere. It's as if the proud Indian chief changed his mind about going with church and remains eternally at his campsite. See, this one's a little more realistic, I feel, because of the 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 betrayal, you know what I mean, that happened. Like, the energy and the feeling of betrayal in the mood, in the air of what happened there. Um, especially, you know, it's broken, you know... Like, he trusted the church, and, you know, you put the faith in in, in God and God's people, if you will. And um, he thought that, okay, I can trust these people. And then they they done him dirty. Um, I feel like the anger from that and and kind of the the bitterness and maybe some hatred from being double-crossed like that is enough to keep his spirit around. Uh, It goes back to the unfinished business type deal where... You know he might want he might want you know he he can't really rest because he he was screwed over you know what I mean? Yeah, I can see a restless spirit. That one there makes sense to me. Yeah, uh, yeah, the betrayal, uh, the death. You do have a restless spirit afterwards. So his uh, his spirit being there, his energy being there, that I can understand completely. Um, other unex- other unexplained sounds have been heard, as well as screaming, shouting, and even uh, a single word, well emphasized twice, Lutash. Incredibly, Lutash is Algonquin Quinn for stand and fight. In its phrase, Anawana himself rep- purportedly used to use at the at battle near Mount Hope. Maybe his regretful spirit wishes he'd done that instead of rendering as he did. Of course, the poor man who heard the phantom's command while alone in the woods had no idea what unusual word, what the unusual word meant at the time, or that Anawan had never used it, had ever used it. Uh, all he knew was that the unseen entity that shouted at him was too close for comfort. Um... Also, those words and stuff, I feel like, can easily be manipulated, where if you hear something, and then you later find that, you know, you go, it's word of mouth type deal, where they say, hey, I heard this, and they'll be like, well, yeah, it could kind of be this, or it could kind of be that, and what's more interesting, what's a better story, you know what I mean, and it passes like that, especially if, if the person hearing it isn't familiar with that language, like... If we heard a word from a language that we don't know and we went, we brought into a bar and we're like, oh, I heard something. Well, what'd you hear? Uh, oh, well, that sounds a little bit like uh, you think it was uh, yeah, maybe it was that. You know what I mean? And then now you got folklore and you have, you know, the passing of stories and such. Um, but I definitely, yeah. No, what I was going to say, okay, I'm going to give you two words. Yes. And you try and repeat them. Okay. Now, Shuunk Mokwoshum. 
Nashuank Makochum. But that was very hard. So I can, you know what I mean? Like, that's what I mean. Like, I could, I could, if you asked me five minutes or if you asked me right now to say what I just said, I couldn't do it. You know what I mean? Uh, (laughs) Those words translate into Spirit Wolf. Yeah. Which is my native name. I was given by a tribe. But, but, you know, if I were to say those, and like you said, somebody later on were to try and say it, it would be changed. If someone were to take what they thought they hear, they heard, and then tried to look it up, who knows what they would, oh, that looks like what I thought it sounded like, Mm. so that must be it. And there really wasn't a written language to base it on, because, um, the, in history, the natives didn't write, uh, keep history books or dictionaries like we did, or we do. So the misinterpretation is very easy. Yeah. So yeah, I think that it was, I think that was more of a misinterpretation situation, but, um, I do not, I do not doubt the fact that what, after what happened to him, that he would stick around, or at least his energy and, and emotion on the, and, and, you know, the anger would stick around, you know, like we've talked about before, I think that's what keeps things around is when they're, when things are like, um, not quite resolved, you know, not, not quite resolved before, before departure type deal. Uh-huh. I'm being distracted because I'm out back and I'm watching a chopper fly by. Black helicopter? Is it black? Uh, it's kind of hard to tell because it's hard to see. So, yeah, it might be against that back sky. Yeah. Does it have lights on it? <laughs> what? Does it have lights on it, like uh, like uh, multicolored lights? Yeah, this one does. That's probably the one that, one that I've seen. It's coming for you now, right? Oh, well, they know where I am. They've known for a while. That's very gangster. That's very gangster. Our, uh, our next story up is Shady Factory Mill Ruins. Of all the spooky places in town in Rehoboth, there are many, uh, there are many. None instills a sense of foreboding as a potent and mem- memorable as the old Shade Factory Mill Ruins. The mill started as a Palmer River manufacturing company built in 1810 on the site of the old Joshua Smith Grist Mill. The Palmer River Mill made cotton yarn until its 1826 expansion when it became manufacturing fine cotton cloth. At that time, it became the the Orleans Manufacturing Company. The Orleans Manufacturing Mill was destroyed by fire in 1831, but was rebuilt a year later. Production was halted during the Civil War and resumed when the war was over. Cotton products continued to be manufactured until the second and final fire of 1884, which leveled the mill. It was never rebuilt and fell into, a ra- uh, fell into ruins. But some say that the, fu- uh, the fires that twice destroyed the mill still appear occasionally, even though the mill itself is a long since been dis- uh, has long since disappeared. Phantom flames have materialized spir- sporad- uh, sporadically and dissipated before incredulous observers. And that's not all. Passerbys have reported seeing apparitions, including a menacing hooded male spirit who appears and disappears before their eyes. Mysterious white lights have been seen in the surrounding woods, far uh, far easier uh, on the nerves than the occasional screams heard uh, emanating from the ruins, but the most commonly reported phenomenon is not as 
outwardly blatant. It's a failing of sadness and anxiety that overwhelms you with when simply passing by the ruins. The sensation of being watched by a dark force that doesn't want you there and the urgent desire to flee quickly. Yeah, I mean, if, if people died in that fire, which I assume they had to have, um, in the, both of the fires, then I could see, I could see that being haunted. You don't think, do you think if no life was lost and let's just say a big factory went down, that's not enough for it to be, uh, to come, continue to come back, do you think? It didn't have to be life lost. Or, or do you think it's just a bad energy that maybe, you think even like, uh, if there was bad, a lot of bad feelings and energy in that building, do you think that that energy alone would be allowed to keep that almost like the building itself was possessed and not allowed to kind of carry on? You know what I mean? I think so. Also, if you're talking about mills and you go far enough back, they were hell to work in. Yeah. Uh, kids worked in them. The working conditions were bad. It was not uncommon for people to be injured seriously and or die while working in them yeah um if you add in the fires and a potential of more death the whole atmosphere in there mm -hmm. was very oppressive yeah. so even if they didn't die in a fire there'd probably be a pretty good chance that that energy imprint their imprint the anger and the pain just from the people working there mm -hmm. might stay because over a period of time that would be a lot of people putting that energy into that place that negative energy and if you do add some deaths in there, then, uh, yeah, you've got, whether a mill's standing there or not, it's haunted ruins or haunted ground. It doesn't say anything about people on for being, being seen, I don't think. I don't think it did. I mean, you got a dark forest. They were watched by a dark forest. That was in there, but which, that could have been it because it all would have... You know, all that dark energy would probably, if it was to be seen, it would probably... You know, be, be, show itself. They probably all have to all that all that energy would have to gather up to show itself in like a big, you know, a big form like that. I'd be I'd be expecting more um, almost shadow people. I would I would have expected to see more shadow people or people that perished in fires there. You know what I mean? Well, if there is a lot of negative and dark energy there that can itself bring something else through that's negative. And that's what they're seeing. That's what the dark force is. Because yeah. something else that was evil used all that energy, used all that negativity to take a form of its own. Fortunately, it's trapped there, uh, hasn't continued to grow, but uh, that could be what they see. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, that's, I, I think you're right with that. Our next story is the Haunted Hornbine School. Uh, the towns of Rehoboth. Rehoboth is a very famous area now. Is, yeah, almost every story kind of dips into them. It opened its first school in the fledging nation in 1643, earning it the honor of being dubbed the birthplace of public education. Interesting. But it was the Hornbine School built in 1845 that really put the town's educational facilities on the map. Hornborn is one of Massachusetts' most haunted schools. The school operated as a one-room schoolhouse for students in kindergarten through ninth grade, but it ceased operation in 1937 
when the town eliminated all but three school districts. After serving a number of purposes, Hornbein eventually became vacant, but it was restored in its original appearance by the Hornbein School Association in 1968 and is now open to school groups and to the general public by appointment. It is in this capacity that the school located at 144 Hornbein Road uh, came to be known as Haunted. It is said that the stern phantom teacher still holds classes for her equally phantasmal students. Many people claim to have had paranormal encounters while walking past or peering into the unoccupied school. Voices as if classes is being held and heard emulating through uh, from inside, even though passerbys can find no source for the noises. Those peeking in the windows have noticed a dramatic drop in temperature surrounding them, a sure sign of ghost, a ghostly presence. If they stuck around long enough to get a good look inside, they might have seen the strange reddish glow sometimes reported. Most startling of all, though, is the case of a woman who, herself a teacher, was doing a little snooping around on the grounds just to see uh, what an old-time school looked like. She thought she had chanced onto a history presentation when she peeked through the window to see a teacher and a whole classroom with attentive students dressed in the 19th century clothing. The teacher looked out at her rather sternly as if to admonish the woman for interrupting their session, but the woman wasn't uh, deterred. She walked around the building to the, foot, to the door and found it locked, which was a bit odd, but, now, but not as odd as the fact that, uh, that all those people were inside, yet hers was the only vehicle on the property. She knocked, but nobody answered. Then she walked back to the window through which she had first seen the class and found the schoolhouse completely empty. As she walked away, dazed and confused, she gave the school one last look and saw that the teacher had reappeared and was looking out at her. Seconds later, the teacher evaporated into thin air. Um, it didn't really say anything about anything wild happening at the at the school. If I, did it? I, don't, I could have overlooked it. I could have not thought about it, but I... I did, there's really no reason why it would be haunted. I don't think it addressed. Um, well, I don't know. If you go back to the 1800s, if you misbehave, you were likely to catch a beating. You think, uh, you think? It's a, it was a, di a different world back then as far as the sternness of the teachers and what they were allowed to do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it wasn't a pleasant experience to get an education. Right. You think it was, it was from a time of plagues or of... of, of sickness um where you know kids would go to school probably carrying the sickness and they gave the sickness to all their all their classmates and the teacher and they all they all perished and that that's why they were all linked together was because they all kind of went out from the same disease um they've had we've had surges of uh different diseases back in the early 1900s right. i know there were some i forgot what the name is now uh, the killed millions. Um, there were times of, uh, bad crops and famine. Uh, there was a lot that the people who went there and if the families would have been subjected to and the kids would have brought into the school, whether it be the illness itself or the stress and the hard times they were going through. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're going back to the 1800s, you're also going back to the trauma of, well, the Civil War, 
then you've got World War One. Not, and that's not even uh, talking about the different illnesses that went through the country at different times. So, in that place, um, even if a child was suffering, the teacher was more likely to tell him to shut up or give him a beating. Mm. That's very true, and um, perhaps. Hornbine was the very first Columbine. Maybe that's where they all came from. Maybe there was a school school poisoning or a school shooting. Um, I don't think guns were maybe the musket back then. But yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the deal. Is you know, we've only kind of dealt with school shootings in the last twenty, maybe yeah, maybe twenty twenty five years. Realistically. It all kind of, you know, Columbine, which was 99, I believe, was kind of the first big school shooting. I mean, I'm sure there's always been stories of a kid bringing a gun to a school and killing the bully or whatever. But I feel like Columbine was that first, I think 24 kids died. And I think that was the first actual, like, you know, school, school shooting. But who's to say that, you know... Back in the day, there wasn't uh, a kid that was heavily picked on, and maybe he, maybe he brought in a special batch of cookies for everybody, or something like that. You know what I mean? And that's very possible too. And you know, I can see him, you know, eating the cookie himself. Like I'm trying to figure out how all the teacher and all the students would still be seen. Something had to have happened. You know what I mean? It would take a lot of research, and I say a lot, because quite often at that time, they wouldn't want it to be, well, they didn't have the media uh, access that we have now, and a lot of that was kept quiet. A lot of it wasn't spread around, yeah. uh, so that there are things that could have happened there, and unless a local paper published it, in which case you'd have to go digging through papers for, um, what, a century or two, <laughs> you... Uh, you're not going to find it. It's not going to be readily available. That's a local place. We should go there. We should bring you and maybe, uh, you know, Mrs. Morris can come with us and we'll get some feels for it. Maybe you guys can feel out some truth that happened there. Oh, yeah. I got a couple, uh, couple of people that can come along. We'll figure out what goes on. I'm very curious why they would stick around. Something, some traumatic thing ha- had to have happened. It's not just the fact that they, they they grew up, they lived long lives and grew up, and then they loved that school so much that that's where they all went when they died, you know what I mean? No, there had to be some event that drew them back there and yeah. trapped them there. Do you think, um, to go down a dock road a little bit, if you think that maybe the teacher... Maybe that teacher was, uh, maybe did some diddling or something like that. You think something like that would bring them all back? Uh, yeah, the teacher could have done some dark stuff. Where that, even though they, they grew up, maybe they grew up and they, I know when we did the second episode of Mostly Ghostly, we talked about the, the studio, the rental space, um, and there was a guy in there that did bad things, and we talked about how we thought that him, as well as the people that were involved in the bad things, kind of joined joined back up in that building after they died. Um, 
So it's almost something weird like that, maybe. But yeah, we'll have to go there and get a feel for it because I uh, I have no idea why they would still why they would still be around. Um, our next next uh, story is a very famous one from the Bridgewater Triangle that everybody likes to talk about, and it is the redheaded hitchhiker. Have you heard about the redheaded hitchhiker before, Ray? Nope, that one's new to me. That's new to you. All right. As uh, as one of the towns that marked the Bridgewater Triangle, Three Corners, Rehoboth, has more than its fair share of ghost stories. In fact, many people believe it to be the most haunted little town in Massachusetts. I believe that. It is possible in a town where phantoms leap out of the ruins, ghost fire, fires rage, and spectral classes continue long after... A deserted old schoolhouse has closed its doors. Anything's possible. Take the red-headed hitchhiker, for instance. Once upon a time, a red-headed man wearing a red flannel shirt wandering gingerly along the U.S. Route 44 in Rehoboth, something must have gone away. Because the man who moseyed along the road was now, has now been haunting it for years. Terrifying drivers, even to this day, who dare to brave the deserted stretch of road near the Seekonk-Rehoboth line. Nobody knows who the red-headed man is, or why he got such a kick out of taunting the unsuspecting victims. Uh, is it because he stepped into the path of an oncoming vehicle long ago and was killed? Or because he was involved in a fatal car accident or farming accident nearby? But why seek revenge on the closure from... Uh, hapless strangers. The man clearly know, knows he's dead, and he uses it to his full advantage. Such uh, shameless shamelessness has made his appearance legendary. There have been many reports about the red-headed hitchhiker, and all are remarkably similar, uh, giving pause to the notion that the story is pure myth. Every person who has ever been graced with the apparition's presence agrees that his hair is unmistakably red, as is his flannel shirt. Sometimes the middle-aged ghost looks well-groomed, other times he appears disheveled, but his hair and shirt are always, always red. His eye color varies. However, according to his many acquaintances, they've been described as black, lifeless, glowing, empty, Red, yellow, green, white, mischievous, evil, insane, and unnatural. But never have they been described as normal. At least not in hindsight. Usually he appears so solid that he managed to get, uh, get a lift by help, helpful citizens, only to disappear before their eyes. It seems fant the phantom enjoys seeing his vic victim squirm, when they ask him a question, he ref refuses to say anything. Yeah, that's the story that I know of it, is you'll be driving down the street, you see him, you pick him up, and then he just kind of stares at you in the rearview mirror um, and doesn't talk to you, and then he eventually will disappear. But um, at that point, you can still you hear him laughing in the woods like he's playing a joke on you. And uh, he's also been known to reappear back in the back seat of your car after the whole uh, situation. But offer, but he offered instead of when you look, instead of offering you a grin and a wicked, wicked twinkle of his chameleon eyes, one man told him to get out after such an encounter. At which point, the phantom 
oblongly vanished in an instant. The Phantom of Route 44 has done many things that would be impossible, not to mention plain stupid. If he were not a ghost, he was walked into the path of an oncoming vehicle, which proceeded to drive right through him. Much to the driver's horror, in one case, after the driver realized he must have run over a ghost, the red-headed hitchhiker transported himself instantly to the point farther ahead where he could go again, walk in front of the same car. He, um, he plastered his mug to the passenger side window of another car being driven at 55 miles per hour, but vanished as soon as the driver pulled over. And yet another case, he sat by the side of the road waiting for his victim to approach by foot, and then he just stared at the man without responding to questions as the hapless man hurried away realizing that something wasn't right about the stranger by the side of the road he heard menacing laughter um, blowing from the behind him to the into the, the them then to the left then to the right and way up in front of him and back behind him again as if it were jumping from place to place instantaneously Surrounded by the supernatural laughter, he raced back to his broken-down vehicle and found his girlfriend hysterical. She said a strange man's voice had come over their radio saying her name, then laughing repeatedly. The fiery ghost with the fiery hair always makes himself heard as he disappears. It could be his intimidating laughter, a holler, or even a patronizing statement intended to belittle his victims. But so far, he hasn't said, didn't your mother ever tell you not to pick up strangers? <laughs> now, yeah, with the he, red-headed hitchhiker is very famous around here. He doesn't kill anybody or anything weird, but he is somebody that, like in those stories, uh, when you're cruising down that street, you know, or walking down as well, at, at, you know, very late at night, um, you, you, you run into, the, you stumble into this guy. I've heard a few stories of the on foot thing, but mostly the stories are pretty much you pick him up or he's in the street and you, you, you accidentally hit him, so to speak. And, um, he, you know, vanishes and appears within your back seat and, uh, uh, scares people. He kind of has a wicked sense of humor. You know what I mean? It's one of those things. Um, uh, to yeah. me, it sounds more like someone who was hit and he's come back to torment and find amusement in tormenting drivers. Here, run me over. Yeah. Here, run me over. Oh, give me a ride. I'm here. I'm not here. I'm outside your window. It sounds like uh, that particular spirit is staying there just to play with the driver, uh, the drivers. And that would seem to indicate that a driver did something to him. And... Uh, He's now messing with the new ones and continues to, to come down the street. I agree with you with that one completely because I feel like if he was hit, and he has a really wicked sense of humor because if he was hit, I could see him wanting to mess with all the people that were speeding or whatever. But there's certain people that, out of the kindness of their heart, pick him up, and he still scares them. So it's one of those things where do you think it comes, you got to question is it is he just being wickedly has a wicked sense of humor or is he actually there to try and be drain and drain bad energy you know what i mean what do you do what do you think do you think that there's such ones that are just a spirit that would be that would get a dark sense of humor of of making somebody scared 
or do you think the ones that would make you scared would be because they're they're you know natural evil and they're just trying to suck your energy out of you? Well, this case to me it sounds more like uh, let's say if someone were hit and they're lying by the side of the road and they're kind of laughing at themselves saying they don't believe it. Yeah. And then they then they hang around to uh, have some fun with the uh, next one coming down the road. Do you think that the, do you think that these spirits know that they suck the energy out of people? Or do you think it's just something they feel like they're they're just kind of not existing, but you know, going through a routine? Uh, routine is more residual. This one doesn't sound like that. This one sounds like it's actually going after the people and uh, drawing energy out of them yeah. to keep to be able to continue to do that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah, it's one of the one of the biggest Bridgewater Triangle stories is the good old redheaded hitchhiker. Um, Rehoboth Village Cemetery. It's balmy summer night. You're driving down U.S. Route 44. This is more U.S. 44 in the town of Rehoboth. A little on edge thinking about that red-headed hitchhiker guy known to prowl this stretch of the highway. Your senses are already on full alert as you pass by the village cemetery. When suddenly a blood-curdling scream pierces the darkness, followed by an ungodly maniacal fit of laughter. Whatever you do, don't stop to investigate, especially if your name is Catherine. This is on the same street, so I wonder if these are kind of connected. Because um, maybe that whole redheaded hitchhiker dude could have been a guy that threw himself in front of a car after losing the love of his life, Catherine, or a daughter, or, or you know what I mean, Catherine. So, and then he, 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 his cries and laughter are heard in the cemetery as well as the street. But I'll finish up with uh, this one. Rehoboth Village Cemetery dates uh, to the 1600s, but its most famous resident resident ghost that is dresses in 18th century clothing he's an older man who appears in the rear southwest corner of the cemetery alternatively laughing hysterically and crying inconsolably at the one per at one particular grave he snares at anyone who dares to look at his way and seems to take pleasure in scaring away visitors the feisty phantom with empty dark eye sockets spews forth vulgarities at members of the ge uh, gentler sex and follows such verbal lashings with obscene gestures that apparently have endured several centuries. He especially targets women. In fact, he may have bludgeoned a woman to death when he was alive. One witness to his apparition heard him scream, Catherine! Catherine! in her direction, followed by unprintable expletive expletives. She fled back, uh, she fled the cemetery in terror, actually fearing for her life, glancing back in her rearview mirror at the spot where she had seen him. Uh, she noticed that he was leaning over a woman in Victorian garb who was laying on the ground, and he was pounding furiously on her. Um, then they both vanished before her eyes. Other witnesses have reported an old man in the cemetery screaming and pounding on their car windows as they sped away. 
and several reports have an old man gliding through the cemetery looking for victims to terrorize. His movement was has been described as liquid-like and deliberate. Cold spots are commonly reported throughout the cemetery. The other voices have been heard, such as a young girl's ghostly laughter on the opposite side of the cemetery. The Rehoboth Village Cemetery is not the only haunted graveyard in the small town. Palma River Burial Ground on Lake Street is also known to be quite haunted. A young boy dressed in 19th century clothing has been wandering through the cemetery as if looking for help. Sometimes a boy fitting that description is seen accompanied by two grown men and the phantom coffin has also been reported, appearing and disappearing from the center of the burial grounds. It seems that in Rehoboth cemeteries, it's hard for a body to rest in peace. Um, yeah, that, that kind of had a couple different ghosts in that story, but um, I almost feel like that guy, that guy probably lost a loved one whether maybe he got up, got upset and killed her himself, or maybe somebody else did. And uh, whenever I hear about a little kid and two grown men, I always think of pedophile shit. So maybe those two men got wild, did some crazy bad things with that kid, killed the kid. Then they got a little bit of that small-town justice, maybe. And uh, the townspeople made sure that uh, they had to cancel their Christmas plans that year, if you know what I mean. Yep. You know, that, that sounds like it would make make sense to me. But this is all in the same stretch of highway that um, the red-headed hitchhiker is involved with, too. So I almost wonder if they intersect, if, uh, he's, if it's almost the same spirit. Because they seem to have a lot of that. They're laughing. They almost, they're almost on the same wavelength of, like, energy. You know what I mean? Of sinister wickedness. Where they're they they're kind of the mean mugging people. Um, supposedly the fir- the first cemetery one they brought up with the girl who ho- was hovering over the girl was yelling ob- obscenities and making rude gestures and stuff. I, all I can do, picture is it is a ghost giving the finger or doing the jerk off motion. You know what I mean? It's like it makes me smile just to think of it. But. Um, yeah, I'd be I'd be wondering if they're all if all those spirits are kind of intersected with because they got that dark wicked humor. What's your What's your opinion on them? Uh, well, several things. I think the old man there would be the possibility that he actually committed a crime, mm-hmm. and he's got that anger and he's trapped there. Um, the other thing is that that stretch is also part of the Bridgewater Triangle, so the energy mm-hmm. there can be trapping people. The energy there can be holding people, particularly if um, when they passed, it was under traumatic circumstances or they caused someone else to pass, such as in killed. Um, that energy sucked them in so that they're stuck there. The old man could simply be angry because he's stuck there. True. He could be angry at other people that they can see him and they know and he's stuck there and he can't get away and he's, he's pissed, whereas others, um, they just... Totally unaware, stuck there just laughing and going about their business, ghostly business. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's it. I think that there's de- there's definitely I yeah, I think they're tied in. I think that the redheaded hitchhiker and these people are 
Unless it's just that part of town where the, they, they, those people are crazy. They were crazy people that had dark sense of humor. Well, you're also talking, if you're talking about um, the years, you're going back to 1800s, 1700s, different times. Uh, back there, there's a lot of history built up in that town over those times. Yeah. And a lot of things that have that have happened, again, inside the triangle. So it kind of all comes together very well to be able to trap someone there who's not at peace when they pass. Yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. Just just not being at peace. And yeah, there was a lot of... I think that if, if they investigated that more, they might have a better idea of what the hitchhiker situation is. But... Our uh, our final story for the South Shore is uh, like we said at the beginning, probably one of our mo- most most famous um, one of our one of our hauntings that is not really hush hush, but is our, our it's our, our well we get Salem our witch our witch trials as well, but the Lizzie Borden house is also one of our. Um, claim the fames in the paranormal world. Um, I've always wanted to go and do the tour, but there's like a five-year waiting list, which I think I said this last episode, we, I should probably fill out an application sooner than later um, to finally actually be able to get in there. But it's cool. It's a bed and breakfast, and um, you make your reservation with whoever. You go in there. You stay overnight there. I think they even do like a tour in there. But you're allowed, like you're allowed to bring in investigating equipment and you know try and catch audio or pictures. Um, it's very you know welcomed. And uh, like I, for people that don't know, the, I'm sure it's about to tell you the story now. But Lizzie Borden's uh, killed her parents, if I remember correctly, with an axe. There's a nursery rhyme. Do you remember the nursery rhyme? I don't. Remember. Something about 40 wax that uh, killed somebody, and then the other gave him 40 wax. I don't remember the exact thing. Yeah, it was like she gave her mother 40 wax and gave her father 42 or something like that. But yeah, yeah, long story short is Lizzie Borden was a girl that I don't even know if she had, if there was trouble at home or if she just lost her mind one day. But um, I think there was trouble at home. But long story short, she took an axe and uh, she was she killed her parents with an axe before it was cool, you know what I mean? Before it was the cool thing to do. Um, way back, way back stuff. It was she was she could have been the very she was the long lost uh, Menendez sister, you know what I mean? Well, there's a couple of stories. One uh, is people who have looked at it, the story very carefully suspect that her killing was in response to abuse, particularly in the father's part. She would have killed the mother because the mother allowed it to happen. Yeah. That's one thing that's suspect. Another is that when she got off, um, she did have a sister. And what happened afterwards is they both ended up very well off hmm. inheriting what the father did. And some people suspect the sister may have been involved along with it. So it was done either to get the inheritance between the two sisters or as other people say it was because of the abuse from the parents that she just flipped turned on them i want to say i heard something about her dating like her dating a cousin or an uncle or something like that that was found out after the fact 
Yeah, there's a whole family intrigue thing in the way that went down that really makes me question it. And she got off on that, or did she have to go away for it? Oh, she got off scot-free. Really? Interesting. Hmm. For some reason, I feel like she went away forever. In my head, I thought, I thought she went away for that, but... Well, if you're talking about, let's, if you, if you take the, uh, abuse aspect of it, yeah. there would be, a, besides the violent deaths, there would be a lot of negative energy there mm-hmm. from that. So that could be <laughs> to, to the haunting. And then again, if it was a family thing, where it's actually a plot against the parents, mm-hmm. and it's the murder, she could be trapped there from the murder that she committed along with the parents. And that's basically, who are serving her time in a personal hell to be stuck with those same parents in that place. And that would go back to the betrayal thing. Yeah. If if the parents didn't get killed. It was very very pre-Menendez brothers who shotgunned their parents uh, because the father was diddling them, but the mother was more of a turn turn a naked eye... uh, turn her head when it was going on and ignored it and that's why they got her um but yeah yeah and if she did i mean just in general even if i almost wonder this was what like the 1890s um like if if it was even if she could get off like i feel like back then even no matter what your parents did to you it was unacceptable for you to kill them you know what i mean like i almost feel like they would say it was a whole different, completely different time. So who knows if, you know, nowadays you could go into court if you were in a situation like that and they'd be like, oh, you were abused. Um, all right, that you were punished and let them off. But I, I, I wonder if in the 1890s, if that there was such a honor thy mother and father type deal that it was you shouldn't have killed like. I don't care what they were doing to you. You know what I mean? Well, that's where it goes into the uh, the wealth of the family and a fix being in. Interesting. So the, so the family gets off with the uh, wealth that came down the rest of the family. It gets off of that family inheritance. Hmm. Good point. It's probably it's probably a money thing, yeah, I'd say. Usually is. Whenever there's money involved... Uh, in a questionable murder, a double murder in this case. And it's so personal. Like, hacking somebody up with an axe. Like, I can understand shooting somebody. It, it's very impersonal. You know, it can be personal, but, like, for the most part, you're pulling the trigger and then the bullet's doing the dirty work. But in this situation, yeah, the axe is doing the dirty work, too, but you got to continue. you, you got to continue pumping, either, you know, and uh, it's a messy job. Uh, it's one of those things where you have a regular person, a normal person that would go, I'm so angry, I'm going to I'm gonna fucking cut them up with an axe. And they say it, but once it gets, starts getting bloody and gory, they're going to stop because it's going to be overwhelming to them. But, you know, her hacking them up with giving them 40-something wax, or it might even be more, like that's going to be a gruesome crime scene. So it had to, it had to have been something deeply personal there. I feel. I think the energy and the commitment put into committing that crime, yeah. and how bad it was for the victims as well, that sets up a situation where, yeah, um, I totally believe there is a haunting there. Yeah, 
there right. is something there. there was, that's just too much involved in that. Like you said, it is personal, difficult to do. Never mind the pain of the people receiving it. That whole thing, the way it plays together, I'd say, yeah, that's uh, that's haunted. Yeah, if you, if, in previous stories of people again becoming haunted because of a drowning or because of you know going off of a road in a car in a buggy, um, stuff like that. If that's going to create a ghost, then 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 being hacked up with an axe, uh, being alive and then destroyed with an axe is definitely going to leave some some bad fucking karma hanging around. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, but I'll dive into her story real quick. Thirty-two-year-old uh, Lizzie Borden was accused of murdering her well-to-do father and stepmother on August fourth, eighteen ninety-two, in their modest house at ninety-two Second Street in Fall River. After the grisly murders, which were committed with either an axe or a hatchet, the eighteen forty-five house became a city landmark and continued to be used as a private residence for the next hundred years or so. Though Lizzie was acquitted of the murders due to lack of evidence, she continued to be ostracized by her community. And in, indeed, the whole world, so she changed her name to Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth Borden, I'm guessing, it's not too much of a change. Uh, and moved a mile away to a a 14-room mansion called Maplecroft in the elite Heritage Hill neighborhood. Uh, Compliments of her substantial inheritance, she died alone in 1927 within within 10 days of her sister and staunchest supporter, Emma. Uh, The two women were buried in the family plot that had to make their parents roll over in their graves. The Borden residence on 2nd Street eventually became a bed and breakfast and is currently owned by Donald Woods and managed by his partner, Leanne Wilbur. Today, the brave and curious uh, can tour the infamous house and even sleep in Lizzie Borden's bedroom or in Abby and Andrew's bedroom, where Abby was nearly decapitated by 19 sharp blows to the head before her husband suffered the same fate with 11 blows that virtually sheared off his face. So I guess it wasn't as high as 40, but that's still, for someone who's a novice to killing, I think that's still pretty heavy duty. Um, The house has been restored to its humble Victorian appearance, and at the time of the double homicide, many of the Borden family's belongings are still there. The breakfast served to the lodgers in the same uh, is the same that the Bordens themselves ate the morning of their murders. You think stuff like this upsets the spirits? It, it has to, right? Oh, definitely. Same belongings, same routines as far as the breakfast. That's that's a trap, and it it, it upsets them there. It keeps them there. Making a mockery of it, you know, people having a good time, laughing about taking, you know. It, <laughs> Because it's become such a like a sideshow that like people probably lose track of the fact that like it's weird where like they know that people died there but they don't respect it almost. You know what I mean? Oh, their uh, I mean the the tragedy now has become their amusement, yeah. and yeah, that that would upset the spirits. That's darker than the actual like 
act to begin with. Um, if that isn't authentic enough for Lizzie for Lizzie buffs, perhaps the ghosts of Abby and Andrew will make it so. Uh, many guests have reported hearing a woman weeping during the night, and some have said that they were tucked in by a kindly older woman wearing old-fashioned clothing. Even though such uh, pampering wasn't part of their package, objects occasionally move by themselves as stunned onlookers watch. Lights sometimes flicker as they should in any reputable haunted home, and cameras and video equipment malfunction. Much to the delight of those who know uh, that such things are a sure sign of paranormal activity. Lizzie, you can visit the Lizzie Borden house, uh, com for more information. For those brave enough to stay at the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast, be forewarned that if the tragic history of the house doesn't give you a severe case of the willies, the ghost story sure will. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like, um, I feel like that, uh, them, them making a mockery of those murders is, uh, enough to keep, that's probably why there's so much, why they're catching things on video and camera and seeing things move and hearing, hearing the lady weep. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the lady weeping was something from late, from, from after, you know, not she wasn't weeping because of something that happened before she died, but it was she's weeping because of everybody kind of making a mockery of the fact that she got hacked up with an axe. You know what I mean? Well, you take the event itself, like we said, that is traumatic and releases a lot of energy. You take if they're keeping some of the furniture and keeping certain routines there, mm-hmm. that's a draw. And then the people going there. Uh, investigating, attempting to contact with, contact them, that's drawing and keeping in there. And then you add in the insult aspect of people, uh, who don't take it seriously and do it for amusement and laugh, then, uh, yeah, that could piss them off. For sure. And I wonder if Lizzie made her way back to that house. Um, I think so. Personally, I think if there's any justice in the world, that's where uh, the parents are trapped there. I think, like I said before, that's where her hell is. So that's where she's going to be trapped also with them. So you lean more towards you think she she was guilty of what, what happened? It wasn't a, like her. It wasn't a situation of abuse where she just wanted it to stop. You think that she kind of, you, you was the corrupt route and did it for their money? I think it might have been a combination of both. I don't see where, if there was the abuse, um, being that brutal, um, really just, really justifies it. I think that, uh, I know at that time period you were trapped because you couldn't go to the court and say anything. But the brutality of it, I think it might have been a combination of the two, the two things. But one way or the other, she still did, I think she did commit the acts, and that's why she's trapped there. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, I mean, we don't really have much documentation about her. I mean, we, everybody knows the story, but they don't know ev- evidence that was brought up in trial. They don't know 
you know, what her home life really was. We don't, nobody knows what she, who, how she was as an actual human being, you know what I mean? But it'd be interesting to kind of figure out the truth on um, something like that. I want, I'm going to look into it. I'm actually going to look into it and see what it costs and what the waiting list is for the Lizzie Borden house because uh, I'd like to do it. I'm sure Ray would love to do it. Uh, I got friends that have told me throughout the years that they'd like to do it, but um, they also say they'd like to go to the theaters to see the movies sometimes, and sometimes that don't work out for them. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm sure we can get a little group to go. That'd be fun. We could investigate and do the whole deal. But uh, yeah, that wraps up our Southern Massachusetts, the South Shore. Um, and Fall River is only like like a half hour away from me, I think. I got cousins that live in Fall River, and you think you think the Lizzie Borden house is haunted? Wait till my cousins move out of that town. They're 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 we, without killing people, the debauchery they get involved with will leave that place haunted forever. Ooh. Oh yeah. But uh, that wraps up. Uh, Southern Massachusetts, and we got one more chapter next time around about Cape Cod and the islands, and we'll be wrapping up the Haunted Massachusetts journey, and um, from what I hear, we're going to have some more guests. We're going to be doing some more guest shows with some folks, so that'll be fun. Uh, last week was a lot of fun having them folks on. It was the first guest that we had on that... Uh, neither me or Ray have ever met in our lives. Uh, we, we met them strictly through the show. Um, I believe they listened and they were fans and they contacted us up when we put out a, we put out a little, little promo flyer looking for anybody that had, you know, investigation stories or anything they wanted to talk about paranormal. And they, she hit me up and, uh, it grew from there. So we got, I, I'd say right now we're looking at like five more guests to, to, to have on the show and me and Ray will probably get back into the uh, the formats that we did beforehand. I know that we want to do a demons, uh, our, our aliens really demons episode, which will be a lot of fun. Um, we also have, uh, the, there's a Hanson Mental Hospital, which is within the Triangle. Uh, me and my buddy Sean, who's the co-host of Behold the Pill podcast, went in there as, as teenagers and got footage and seen a bunch of stuff and and we're going to have him on the show to talk about, you know, what we've seen in there. But, yeah, we got a whole bunch of stuff. We're up to 18 episodes already, Ray. We're, we're cruising. Oh, yeah. 18 episodes. I think we have close to, I think we have close to 13, somewhere in between, uh, t- like, 1,250 to 1,300 listens um, over the last two months, which is really good. You know, out of the, the, I had three podcasts going. I got Mostly Ghostly with Ray. I got Shock Treatment with Mel, Melissa Powder, and I got uh, Behold the Pill podcast with Sean. And to the, the most successful one, baby, Mostly Ghostly, killing it. Ooga booga. Well, you know, it's kind of a subject matter that haunts you. Believe it. <laughs> I had to say it. It wasn't good, but I had to say it. <laughs> it was good. It was good stuff. Um, so yeah, we'll wrap up the episode. We're a little over an hour and a half right now. You know, always a pleasure, of course, Ray. And uh, yep. 
Pleasure's mine. Hell yeah. We'll see y'all on the, on the next episode of Mostly Ghostly, where we do our last Haunted Massachusetts chapter. Be there, be square. All right, Ray, have a good night. You have a good one. Everybody have a good one. Hey, safe everybody, one. have a good time. And we'll catch y'all on the next episode of Mostly Ghostly. Ghostly. <laughs>